are back. Uh, welcome, everyone. This is episode 15 of Room of Requirement. Uh, a podcast dedicated to resistance and soul care in the time of Trump. I mean, really, our tagline should be two unqualified, <laughs> two unqualified friends talking about politics in the yeah, time of Trump. Yeah, just like unwillingly dragged into <laughs> politics. <laughs> yeah, so we uh, like to start this podcast with checking in with each other. I guess it's been a couple of weeks. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, how you been, man? I'm good. I mean, you know, largely the same. I've been here, whereas you have been on vacation. I have been on vacation, yeah. I was in Japan uh, for about 10 days. Yeah. Um, so uh, we were thinking about trying to record the another episode in Japan, but apparently the one thing I learned about the Japanese, not great bandwidth. Relatively <laughs> slow internet, actually. I was really surprised how, how it was. Uh, felt pretty choked off. So we were at a couple of places, and they were like, you just don't use streaming. You can't, you can't use uh, streaming video services. Uh, they're just not set up for it, or however it's metered. It's just way too expensive. I thought that was interesting about uh, Japanese society. That's so, it. That is interesting. Yeah. Is it, do you think it had to do with like the penetration of, I guess, smartphones, or more people were? Yeah, maybe. I mean, it's it's interesting. I don't know enough about how they've regulated their telecoms. I know nothing about how they regulated their telecoms. But I think it may be that there was a penetration. There's no way to search for it either. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> While I was there, it was all written in Japanese, yeah. and the download speed was way too yeah, slow. Exactly. Um, uh, but I there may be some interesting artifacts there. But I don't. I don't know why it was slow, but I was surprised about how limited it was. And um, to the point where I think there were some mismatches uh, in terms of information. So my wife, who I travel, whom I traveled with, uh, she speaks Japanese. But it was really hard for us to tell when, say, certain restaurants were open. Um, because uh, Google information was, like, slightly off about everything. Um, so, like, it would generally get you to the right, in like, neighborhood. But it wouldn't necessarily get you right to the actual location of the restaurant if you're using their map um but also uh, similarly like it would give you information about the restaurant but it wasn't clear that it was completely up to date or if it was off and in america i think that every restaurant has its own crappy website that's always like flash but it always has like their off their hours and things like that that's some one of the things they put up pretty quickly and it was really hard to get that information so certain places certain restaurants are closed on tuesdays in japan or maybe they're closed on Mondays, or Mondays and Tuesdays, or maybe it's Wednesdays. Did not having access to the internet in a way that you're accustomed to having improve the quality of your rest, or was it frustrating <laughs> constantly to the point where it like made you like? No, I think it. I mean, it was perfectly fine, yeah. right? Like, I mean, I, I assume that I don't need to be uploading videos all the time. Right. I don't have to live that lifestyle. <laughs> right, right. Um, I can I can take a break from Twitter. I could take a break. My wife is perfectly happy for me to take a break. There are, like, some minor things that were slightly annoying, but I think it's also, it forces you to interact with people and ask them questions, and I think that could be frustrating if I wasn't with my wife, who, again, speaks Japanese. So uh, that was very easy. We all want to know, like, what was it like not having to know the news? <laughs> <laughs> it's fantastic. It's fantastic. When I went to Japan last year... Um, I, it was okay, I, we landed on election day, so that was something, right? Like, and you and I were talking, uh, or at least chatting over the internet um, at that time. But it was that was a time where I was I was really hooked onto like Twitter, and I was figuring things out, and uh, that was certainly distracting. But this, by now, I think things have sort of settled to where I don't feel really distracted, and uh, you know, I mean, Japan's a really interesting kind of a very 
excellent place to travel to, um, especially if you have an inn and can communicate. Um, but I uh, highly recommend it to anyone. But it was it's kind of fun to have like your internet access dialed down yeah, like a yeah, quarter yeah. notch. Yeah. Like you're not. <laughs> You can get what you want, but you can't necessarily get everything you want. So um, it's not so bad. Do you feel Do you feel rested coming out of it? Or? Not at all. Yeah. Not at all. Um, <laughs> we were talking about this, but I got actually I got sick kind of in the middle of the of the vacation. Um, so apparently, I'm the only one who can get sick in Japan because Japan is a very clean country. <laughs> but I had like a stomach issue. I don't know what it is. Um, and we were eating pretty heavy food too. I think that 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 probably threw some stuff off. So we were eating beef a lot because we were in a region famous for its beef. Um, but uh, I think I wasn't used to that. So I didn't. I got a little sick, and then uh, by the time I recovered, it was time to come home. And now I sort of have jet lag. So um, recalling all this, it sounds like I'm a very weak man, uh, <laughs> no, no, ill-equipped no. <laughs> for the ravages of modern travel, let alone travel from the days of yore. So I am, yeah, apparently uh, not equipped to handle even minor inconveniences. You know, vacations, are they're hard to do. They take a lot out of you. Sometimes they do. Yeah. They shouldn't, but yeah, sometimes they do. I mean, I, I think 90% of the reason for a vacation is to make you appreciate like, your, <laughs> your regular life. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, how you been over the past two weeks? Uh, not bad. Just editing some books and working a bunch and trying mm. to write some stuff. And yeah, just trying to develop a routine where I, I get a lot done because I have a lot to do. Right. So um, so I, I had a couple of thoughts, but I also wanted to ask if you're doing anything to prepare yourself for the upcoming summer. Are you going to take advantage of that in any way? I don't believe in summer. It has um, yet to happen. It's never coming. It's going to be like it's going to be in the fifties for the next ten days. Yeah, maybe, but eventually the eventually the summer will hit. I'm pretty sure New York has faced. I don't know if New York has ever had and not had a summer. I mean, there are places in Europe that have not had summers. Really? Don't tell me that. Yeah. Um, in in Europe, there was a particularly. Um, a cold uh, summer, it would like really affect the crop, and and it's really famous in literary circles because this is it's during that summer during this rainy cold oh, that's when summer. Frankenstein got written and nah, all that shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, that was that was because of a uh, volcano that erupted. Yeah, actually. absolutely. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. So it wasn't like a climate change thing, but yeah, yeah there was. Uh, they say it may have had to do with the volcano that erupted yeah. and really threw off the weather patterns for that year, but. But yeah, uh, you've been good. You've been taking. Yeah, care of I don't. Yeah, I don't have any plans for this summer. I don't. I'd like to travel to some damn place or another. Maybe Las Vegas. I just never been. It's a city that I find interesting. Yeah, yeah I mean, I technically can work from anywhere. I mean, yeah, my job. So I'd, I'd really. Why not in the more. city of sin? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what draws you to Las Vegas? It just seems so damn American in a way. It's like New Orleans, Las Vegas, and New York are the cities I find interesting. It's like specifically American culture, like you know, it's like yeah. weird shit, you know. I I kind of agree with you. I think I kind of don't, but one of the interesting things to do is go see the pawn shops <laughs> in, in in Las Vegas. Yeah. <laughs> oh, interesting wreck. All right. Yeah. All right. yeah what, what makes the pawn shops there? Well, because um, Las Vegas pawn shops, some of them really specialize in like Americana. Like that makes sense, right? They have a lot of yeah, Americana. Yeah, yeah. Um, but um, the way they think about what's old and what's valuable is really interesting. And I've talked to a couple of pawn shop uh, dealers or like uh, secondhand furniture type places, and they're talking about how like out in the Southwest, the difference between 
the culture in the north in the southwest and the northeast is like a couple hundred years it's nothing oh yeah for sure yeah but it's interesting how how different epochs of like american culture seem classic and valuable whereas uh more modern ones or certain um say from the 60s or 70s are probably less valuable and it's interesting to see that divide what's what's valued so yeah go check out the pawn shop yeah 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 all right something to do all right now i got a plan the summer las vegas pod shop is las vegas uh yeah let me know my buddy can probably hook you up with at least a meal or two <laughs> sounds good um it's a dry heat so at some point uh but it, you kind of i mean i was prepared for it right like it's uh it's gambling and um you know there's some really terrible stage shows uh and for some reason my friends wanted to go see penn and teller which even that wasn't very good my favorite thing was actually, like, at some point it drops below 100 degrees. Yeah, that's so everybody goes outside. No, 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 You're already outside. <laughs> oh, right, right, right. And, and I was like, oh, man, I got to put on the long sleeve. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, I better put on the heat tech. It's 98 degrees. <laughs> yeah. um, but, you know, I mean, it's, it's definitely worth visiting for sure. Is summer like off season for Las Vegas? I imagine. I think it's just hot no all the time. Off season. Yeah, I don't know what the off season is. Sing, you're bachelor for three weeks. Right? I am a bachelor for three weeks. <laughs> My wife is uh, still in Taiwan, so she's visiting her parents. So it'll take a, a while for her to get back. Um, yeah, I got I got I got three and a half weeks or so to, of nothing but time to to kill. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Do you have any plans for how you're going to stay safe? Um, well, I was going to play some video games. Um, I don't, I don't have any other real plans. Um, uh, you're, to... you're saying this, you look so scared. <laughs> no. I mean, I think the point is like I'm gonna. So it takes a little while to get into a groove of like being on your own if you're like married and you know that's it. Just you know that's what your time is spent on. Um, so I had to figure out how to structure my time. Luckily or unluckily for me right now, I'm getting through jet lag. So like I'm waking up at three or four in the morning and like I'm not really sleeping well. So you can always hang out here. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. My couch is your couch. You know, yeah. I, w- I went in and I installed all my air conditioners because we have air care, uh, like window units. And yeah. I realized like there's no need for it. No, like, you probably never need one really in New York. I mean, air there's conditioners? Some, oh. There's some days in August when just like fucking. You yeah, have to. No, we definitely. Well, we live on. We live on like the top floor of a yeah, building. Yeah, it's yeah. hot. Yeah, for sure. it's hot, but like. And yeah, in New York, yeah. we don't have central air, so yeah, 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 it's all window units. And we have a we have a couple of rooms that just don't get cold. Take take yeah, re- re- liberal elites. We have no central air, no dishwashers, no, no dishwashers. washers and dryers. Yeah, we, yeah, we live like animals. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, yeah, like the yeah, luxury of being able, to like, hey, you know what? I'm just gonna throw in a load of laundry while yeah. I watch television. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or it's not like a full day experience. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then you go to like a grocery store, and it's like you can't you can't see the end of it from oh, the bounty. Oh yeah. <laughs> Uh, I and my buddy, at some point we were out in a New Jersey uh, grocery store, and we, I guess we just weren't used to the space. It had been a while since we were out. And uh, he was like, oh, you got to take a picture. And he laid down on the aisle and, like, stretched out. <laughs> and, and, he, know, couldn't, he, he, couldn't he couldn't reach. He couldn't reach. Three carts could pass and <laughs> yeah, Exactly. Full. Yeah, it's just, it's a lot of space. And all the produce is, like, fresh. You, yeah. just, you go in there and you're like, I guess I really haven't seen fresh produce in a couple of years. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, you, you, people, that's that's one of the things that I think people don't know about New York is, like, people will try to sell you, like, rotten shit. 
like spoiled shit in the, you know what I mean? Yeah, like, for some reason <laughs> New York became this really glamorous place and yeah. you're like, no, it's a, it's <laughs> yeah. a grind. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you have to like be on, you know, like food poisoning happens here all the time. What yeah. are you going to do about it? Yeah. Nothing. You just kind of go about your day. I was uh, at uh, the local taqueria yesterday, uh, maybe Friday night or something, and uh, I went to wash my hands in the bathroom and like one sink basically didn't have knobs so it was, <laughs> yeah. it was never it was never functioning and the other sink wasn't draining so there's just like dirty water in it like a garage i, I like eating at this restaurant <laughs> yeah, and, you're and you're like crazy. i know no one <laughs> yeah. what are all the people doing to wash their hands who need to be washing their hands after they go to the bathroom um, just look away. <laughs> look away. I don't know. If we... well, I worked at like some high end restaurants in New York, in the mm. kitchen or whatever, and all the food was stored in like sh- terrible. Like no matter how nice the kitchen was yeah. or how like well it was passing inspection, like there's like a prep kitchen in the basement that all these restaurants have where all the food is stored and like so much is done down there. The art of like chefistry here is like turning like spoiled crappy food into like delicious taste. I feel stuff. like that's a lot of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah, it's stretching out. Yeah, like, yeah, trying to like make it work. Yeah, I feel yeah. like so much of cooking, and I don't know, because of maybe the cooking channel, this has always just been true. It's like trying to come up with the freshest ingredients. Yeah, yeah. No, no, yeah. No, cooking traditionally, you apply heat <laughs> you to didn't... something that is spoiled in <laughs> yeah, order no, to stretch exactly. out these meats and <laughs> yeah, cover up the taste. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is all of French That's cooking. All of French cooking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> it's just covering up the taste of nasty stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Just like politics. Yeah. Do you want to talk about politics? Yeah, let's try to talk about politics. All right. Um, so uh, the Trump administration is settling into what is more or less a boring grind for them, right? Um, and I think that this is there was an initial flurry of activity. It seems to have quieted or just the business of government has taken right it's a slower pace yeah we wouldn't necessarily call it settling into a groove uh maybe maybe a gutter has... right a, a groove sounds like there's something smooth about yeah, it yeah, it's yeah. just like a, rather than like high levels of like cacophony it's more like a low rumbling <laughs> of, of dysfunctional noise um so were there any news stories that stood out to you that we're talking about Kinda no. Okay. I mean, there's still the ongoing sort of Russia thing. So yeah. Michael Flynn's, the revelations about him continue to be interesting. Yeah. Uh, but he is not an interesting person. No, I don't. <laughs> I agree. Um, and we've talked about Russia enough. I just think that and not only does Michael Flynn have connections to Russia, Turkey, uh, and Turkey uh, is kind of the key thing. And I think you brought it up. It really did probably affect our our policy in the region directly, his relationship with Turkey, because he closed doors to a possible outcome for us that would have been our, in our interest. I think in a lot of ways, what's impressed upon me is that Trump is, in fact, a very ignorant person. Yeah. And, and uh, he just doesn't know enough, so he stumbles into a lot of things uh, inadvertently, and then and when he's called out on it, he just doesn't have the right, he doesn't have the wherewithal to kind of either learn or, or deal with that with any kind of grace or in a positive light in a positive manner we need some bipartisan show on tv like a primetime show just called like civics you know <laughs> and somebody from the right and the left you know and then maybe a, a 
professor and then like a car mechanic <laughs> and they sit around and they talk about and then there's a guest you know like sure and they don't talk about their beliefs they just talk about the mechanics of things right right and like history and like why we all believe in democracy <laughs> and hey let's just take it for granted that we do because <laughs> that's fucking that's our country right right <laughs> and then you know just discuss civics and um uh, my wife has been actually been listening to um, a podcast called like Civics One Hundred and One. She says she says it's been really informative. Interesting. Yeah. I... Um, you know, uh, CNN is floating this um, uh, almost the exact opposite of what you're talking about. CNN is floating this show where uh, Kamal Bell um, is going to sit down and interview Richard Spencer. So Kamal Bell is uh, an activist. He's black. He's but he's a comedian who has like a little bit of left leaning. He had his own show for a while. He may still. Um, he has a podcast, I think with Hari Kondabolu. Um, but now, he, so he's going to sit down and he's going to have an, uh, some sort of interaction interview with the head of, I guess, the American Nazi Party, uh, which sounds terrible. It sounds like terrible television. It sounds like it sounds like a Jerry Springer show yeah. come to life. It's too bad. I mean, I think I feel, there's people that, I think like me, that believe in the process uh, in addition right. to an outcome, right? Like, right. I believe the process gets us to an outcome that I can deal with. Right. Uh, and I think the process has things in it that are very wise that will maximize liberty eventually. Right. I think it, there's a lot to be said about the, the inner workings of democracy and American democracy in particular. The reason that I think people find Trump so loathsome, um, and they should find Trump so loathsome, is that uh, you can you can disagree with him as just a Republican. Right? Like I say, if you come from the left and you're a Democrat, you're like, okay, I don't like... Republican policies, maybe they're not strong on the environment, or they're they want to pull back the state, whatever. You could also disagree with Trump because he represents probably a particularly right wing faction of of uh, the Republican Party, especially when it comes to immigration, especially when it comes to dealing with certain things around race. He's also um, he's also just a boorish guy, um, but. I think what I don't see and what I, I don't know if this is just a matter of time or whether or not it's just because the Republican Party is willing to ignore the shortcomings of Trump. What I don't see is people really objecting to the fact that Trump is just bad as a representative of the highest office of American democracy. Mm -hmm. Like there's a lot to be said that he just doesn't care for this position that he holds. And we talk about the slowing pace because it, and it's also there are all sorts of um, news reports coming out that he's just bored with the job or is overwhelmed by the job. But most importantly, I think he just doesn't care about the structure of American democracy, that it is fundamentally not a great democracy for a, uh, in terms of being able to give a lot of power to the executive. It is a power, there are checks and balances, there are inefficiencies built into American government because the founding fathers didn't really want a government that was able to run away and dictate a lot. Um, Trump sees these as inefficiencies. He also, apparently, he doesn't necessarily love freedom of speech as it's practiced right now. Um, all of these issues, how what democracy and uh, the freedoms it allows just seems to be lost on the Trump administration. And that's not a critique from the right or the left. It should be a critique from both. It's not that Trump is a Republican or that he's a far-right Republican. It's that he is someone who is deeply sympathetic to like an autocracy or a light version of autocracy that is 
antithetical to what I think are the really strong points of American democracy. And not the least of which because it's it's lazy. Yeah, right. like it, it's very an autocracy can solve problems very quickly, but it doesn't get at the actual root problems in a way that something that takes into account everybody's point of view. Oh yeah, addresses them, makes people feel heard, goes through a judicial review process. So you know, goes through people that have incentives to get elected every two years, every six years permanently, and are beholden because they have the military at their command. Right. So they have a foreign power perspective. So all four of these you know checks on what makes a good law has to go through all of them has to hit every and then and then even after that's done it has to deal with the press on a regular basis analyzing whether or not it's working what you know uh whether uh it's served actually doing what it's supposed to do right we are a large complicated society with many factions that don't always get along Mm -hmm. and for a government to sustain itself and be for the people you have to be able to in some ways take in the wants and the desires of all those factions to some degree and well i think what's disturbing is that trump seems to not care or not know about uh, about the fundamental contours of american political undertakings right i just don't think he really cares about how the democracy has evolved or the democracy yeah the, be- the beauty of it so you yeah. go from like you know the grafting of kind of enlightenment principles right. uh, onto a you know, Roman structure and then right. larding it with kind of a, a renaissance-like individualism. Right, and, and a good helping of, like, uh, down-home American populism, mm-hmm. right? Like, yeah, I mean, it's Andrew Jackson or yeah, yeah, yeah. Thomas Jefferson, by the way, of Andrew Jackson. There's right? room for almost everybody except somebody like Trump. Right, yeah. right. Uh, <laughs> it's always hard to kind of make these comparisons, but he, especially in a couple of speeches he's made recently remains doggedly divisive, right? Mm-hmm. He doesn't understand why there could be dissent and why that's a healthy thing for the body politic. And at the same time, he seems to conflate the idea of people arguing against him with arguing against this sacred position of the presidency or arguing against the nation itself. So all of a sudden, you're disloyal because you're dissentful. He just doesn't know how to take criticism. He never has. And now it's it could give a, it could become very dangerous if we don't think of dissent as something healthy for the body politic to, un- to understand or to undertake. Like you said, you, you see in the way that he refuses to kind of knock autocrats. Right. He, you can see he feels some empathy with him in the position that he's in. Right. As opposed to his fellow democratically elected leaders. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Not good with Angela Merkel, but apparently yeah. really okay with Rodrigo Duterte, who I was democratically elected, to be fair, but like has done a lot of just terrible things and it goes back to this russia thing where uh i think of him as being not necessarily captured but a kind of a useful idiot of people who are playing a smarter game i.e the kremlin um, when it comes to american politics and there was something where he is i think his advisors were definitely sympathetic and probably fed, fed him information and since it's not someone trump is not someone who has a lot of grounding or understanding of the world he really relies on his advisors, and his advisors were doing a great job of passing along a worldview that was either concocted by the Kremlin or was favorable to the Kremlin. So, I yeah. mean, yeah, I don't know if you're going to find anything that's absolutely incriminating about Trump, but in terms of a Russian investigation, but uh, you know, the people are so scared that it does that it does seem like the process is the only shield we have. People are investigating the process more and finding out, you know, what's 
what's likely and what's going to happen. And right. Uh, yeah, that's yeah, good. Yeah, I mean, we brought this up in the podcast. I mean, part of the uh, results of the November 2016 election is that we were handed a lesson, and mm. people will talk about, oh, we should have gone with this policy or this person. That's not the lesson I think we were handed. I think we just got lazy about how we think about American democracy and the democratic machinery behind it. So um, it wasn't a matter of personalities or it wasn't a matter of selling out to this or that faction. Um, I think it was a matter of people not being engaged and also not understanding how you engage a majority of people. Um, And yeah, just kind of being lazy and taking for granted the fact that democracy works and it works in our favor. Uh, you have to be really active and engage with it, and I think that's the lesson, right? So, so for the as you know, looking back on the hundred days or yeah. whatever, how how successful would you say that the American institutions have been in thwarting some of the overreach of the Trump administration? Um, you know, I think that's a, a I think that's a question that I would answer. That it's they've been remarkably successful, right? So I think it's that's something that a president who has Congress on his side and now is starting to swing the judiciary probably a little bit more rightward, still has real difficulty passing legislation, pursuing an agenda um, that is outside what is generally ex- uh, accepted to be the mainstream of political um, discourse or political interests, right? And that's not necessarily a bad thing. I think, again, Trump comes from the far right uh, when it comes to issues like immigration, and they've largely stopped dead in the water, right? So the last budget bill has no funding for the wall. Uh, he has not been able to uh, push out more restrictive immigration uh, laws in any way, shape, or form. Um, there are some setbacks for sure. I mean, I think he's building up uh, what is effectively a deportation force. Um, but I actually think that the institutions have held up. I think that the civil society has become more fraught, but also uh, more energetic, right? And I think more willing to scrutinize uh, both the government and the presidency. And that I think that's, that is a good thing. I think it's something that the left didn't do enough when we had our own charismatic leader in charge. I'd agree with that. Uh, yeah, especially as a civil libertarian, people tended to take the side of the government as we learn like more and more horrific things about our government and its surveillance apparatus right absolutely Um, foreign policy was also a real dud um, under the Obama administration and uh, I think other than us sort of sniping in the background I don't think any I don't think anyone on the left really came up and said these are problems Mm -hmm. Uh, we need to address them so I think I think one thing that's been kind of in our favor is I think Trump doesn't really understand why getting stuff done early is important. I think he's a natural procrastinator. <laughs> and, you know, this is kind of his first job, right? And he's never really... He doesn't understand that in six months, people are going to be running for Congress again. Right. And they're going to be using him in order to get elected, right? Right. Running against him. Running or, against him, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so you're going to have you know a million flowers bloom uh, in the shit of the Trump administration, right. and he's going to have a really hard time knocking them all down. And, and they're all going to be younger, more media savvy. They're going to have seen Trump do what he did, yeah. and they're going to be using the lessons there in order to springboard their own 
chances at victory. Right, and I think one of the things is that's going to come up is like all these small um, issues that come up, uh, like the rep- quote unquote collusion with Russia, all of these kind of entanglements, uh, his own family's financial entanglements. Uh, none of these are going to be killer blows, right? They're not going to topple the administration, but they are going to hobble it. Yeah. Um, and should the Congress turn, I think it, it sets up for something like an impeachment trial. Um, if the Congress doesn't turn, that's also fine. It's just it really does hobble his effectiveness, and he hasn't figured that out yet. Yeah, he hasn't figured out that this is the least exhausting year in the presidency. Yeah, this was this is the good three months. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now from now on, it's going to be harder. Yeah, there's nothing that's going to turn in terms of Washington unless there's like some magical war. It would require a war, yeah, or like a massive corruption scandal in the Obama administration. Like, they uncover some, like, tapes, you know, where Obama's, like, he's got playing, like, sex parties, you know? Right. <laughs> like, sex parties that's with prostitutes yeah, that somehow yeah. screwed over the Republican yeah, Party. Exactly, right? right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. There's, there's either going to be some scandal. I actually don't think the scandal would last. But I think if we go to war, um, which, thankfully, I don't think we are. I could be wrong. Unless we go to war, I think there's nothing that's going to make us rally around Trump in any significant way. Any more than we have. I think these are... Uh, even though his approval ratings have either uh, bottomed out or have improved a little, I think in general we're seeing this is where we're going to be with his approval ratings. Your mind's made up about whether you're comfortable with a reality TV star being president, probably, you know, instantly. <laughs> I read a fair amount of conservative people. I think I respect a lot of what they have to say, but I still do not understand how this embarrassment to American democracy from both the left and from the right's perspective was better than Hillary Clinton. Yeah. I really, well, really don't. I think there's just such a level of like cultural identification. Yeah. It yeah. really, really matters. I would say a good citizen should have an ideal choice from the right and the left and then see pit these ideal choices against each other. Play both par- parts of your mind. Yeah. I wanted to bring up a couple things that I, didn't, I feel like didn't get reported enough. Um, one is uh, this trickle of voting reports coming in from the uh, electoral boards of the individual states. Oh, yeah. And they talk a little bit about, uh, and it's a weird thing because uh, I think North Carolina just released its its electoral results, um, and they talk about how many, and they review their voting polls, and they see how many people voted illegally or incorrectly. Um, and I think in North Carolina, which is a state of, what, 12, 13 million, and maybe, maybe 60, maybe like 50% or 40% actually vote, um, maybe adults. So it's it's a smaller percentage. Um, Five hundred and eight votes were um, should have been considered illegal or incorrect. <laughs> yeah, um, so, which is human error. Right, right exactly. <laughs> Basically, yeah. I mean, it's it's a very small error. Uh, statistically speaking, it's a small error. It's um, it's and it's it has nothing to do with uh, massive um, voter fraud uh, or voter uh, conspiracies. Uh, it certainly has nothing to do with illegals. Uh, these are often something like convicted felons who uh, voted, or some people voted twice, or something like that. But it is a small number, especially considering that that number, or this mysterious voter fraud conspiracy, is what people use to argue for what should be called voter suppression laws. Mm-hmm. Right. So you're talking about laws that prevent people from voting 
on the order of maybe 500,000, 100,000, something like that, even in North Carolina. So a very small percentage. Um, and I think this is, to me, this is true, uh, or it's indicative of how the Republicans see the world. The Republicans on a number of issues continue to see a, continue to see a small aberration as important enough to indict a larger group of people right and to act against the interests and the freedom of a larger group of people so a small number of voter errors or or even voter fraud becomes an argument to deny people's access to the ballot on the order of 500,000 there's also an analogy for a small number of muslims um, become a reason to seriously talk about uh, outright bigotry or being anti-Islam or being or condemning an entire religion. This is something about the Republican uh, or the conservative viewpoint that perceives risk as being so calamitous that you deny the rights of a much larger population. Um, and it's really appalling. And I... I I think it, it speaks to what is happening, what is happening to identity politics within the Republican Party, which is its party of uh, a minority desperately holding onto ground culturally that they have, they're losing day by day. Yeah, it's also a party of cowardice. Buckley, Bill Buckley, who's a famous conservative, used to say that being conservative means that you it means you find yourself standing on top of a waves, um, yelling stop. Yeah. There is a cultural change. It's moving against the Republicans. And because of that, the way they perceive small aberrations is completely out of proportion. And it's very it's not conservative. How's that? I mean, yeah. there's nothing conservative about being a- unable to proportionally, you know, determine what is a threat and what isn't. Right. That's something else. It's, right. I mean, I guess the word is reactionary. Yeah. Uh, and, and and prejudice and prejudice right like they it gives into it gives into basic prejudices right that yeah. you're confirming a bias about how people different than you are a threat or are somehow and you will pick up small pieces of evidence to justify your bias it's rocking my identity politics for conservatives like i want to be able to respect them on some level you know and that's really... well and i think it's this hard <laughs> thing where i i always wanted this podcast to be about trying to bridge certain levels because yeah. i mean i i'm there's certain there are streaks of conservatism in me but uh in this case this stuff i can't i just can't abide i do i did want to bring up one other thing that so there's actually a really interesting article um or a research piece put out by the government agency called the general accounting office and they did um a number of studies and they reviewed uh the terrorist incidents that ended up causing fatality so fatal <laughs> Um, terrorist incidents um, and uh, it's a really fascinating article I don't know why people aren't talking about it but it's something like of uh, the fatal terrorist incidents to happen in the US uh, 27 or something like 27% were committed by Muslims and of those I think they received something like 500% more coverage than the rest than the 80% and it's like so there is something about how the media reports terrorism as uh, always being linked to Muslims, which it very much is. It's always an argument on the right. Um, and it's just because the media itself is over-reporting. 
uh, Muslims committing terrorist acts as opposed to the 80-70% of terrorist acts that aren't aren't being committed by Muslims. And it, it, this is a government agency, right? So, like, it says something, and it's just an appalling fact and just made me really think about how a lot of how the conservatives view threats is confirmation bias. And it is a prejudice like, about a world that's changing underneath them. Yeah, I've, I've got this... Anytime I sit down with anybody in TV, I'm a writer, and so... Every once in a while, somebody asked me if I have any TV shows to pitch. Yeah. And I don't ever want to write TV, so I pitched this show, which is, it's a buddy, it's like a, a buddy show about, or like a roommate show, right? Yeah. And it's like a right-wing terrorist and a left-wing terrorist. <laughs> and they're like, shit, it's like Pinky in the Brain, basically. Right. And they're like, they share the common goal of overthrowing the United States, but, you know, for different reasons, they have like an unlikely alliance, and they're really crappy at it. And they just bicker and squabble and fuck things up. <laughs> but then their next door neighbor is like a Muslim terrorist that they both hate because he's so good at it. <laughs> and like he gets so much attention. And they just like, they just resentfully sit and just watch him go. It's like <laughs> always making the news. And pitching this to CW. Yeah, it's anyone that'll take It's just out All there. cast by beautiful <laughs> yeah, teenagers. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They totally yeah. sell on yeah, the CW. Yeah, you think I can get that in there? Well, yeah. we'll see. Nobody ever, nobody's ever followed up in, <laughs> in a pilot. But I'm willing to write that pilot. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to write a TV pilot. Um, I don't know how you are a left-wing terrorist in today's America. It's <laughs> right, right, impossible. Right, just, it's possible. It's impossible to get the justified press that you yeah, deserve. Exactly. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, so that's. I think that's it for politics. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so let's go on to uh, doubling down on defeat. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and this is a section where we like to talk about how the Democrats just making sure they never ever gain electoral popularity ever again <laughs> it seems like I, I think in this slow whenever there's a slow news cycle they tend to like uh turn on themselves like yeah like an ulcer like the democrats right. just fucking like turn inward and start like right, right, chewing right. each other's guts out yeah um uh the i think the first incident i always wanted to talk to you about this is um so it is the the riots the um, the fights in berkeley like i really want to talk about that I've almost no thoughts on that. I, I mean, oh, really? Yeah. If there's not a fatality, I don't generally care. I mean, we have so many, like, mass shootings that I tend to save my, like, interest for those because that's really fucked up. Yeah, that's that's fair. I mean, I, um, but what about the underlying cause, right? Like, so uh, this is something that I think you and I talked about mm. and why we sort of wanted a podcast is that I feel like the issue of free speech is core to American democracy, and I always thought the court of what it means to be a liberal but yeah, it feels sure. like it's not being supported in the way that i traditionally think of reflexively you would support free speech that people always have a right to speak and this is am i wrong to think that this is somehow waning in the left you know if you look at the countries that haven't gone nazi in the past like sure uh you know populist wave right mm -hmm. canada and germany uh, would be the two that I would say are not going anywhere as far as like they're pretty they're pretty stable countries as far right. as right uh, they both have on the books anti hate speech laws right yeah they're pretty robust ones like you can't there's just shit you can't say there publicly it is illegal mm -hmm. and I think there's a push in the left to try to adopt some of those laws yeah. right 
And so there's, in, like in the gun control debate, when instances of these things just get ratcheted way up, and it's right. a push for that. I think there's, I think that's the movement that you're seeing. Uh, we, the left would like us to be on the same footing as Canada or Germany with respect to our hate speech laws, yeah. right? Since they've adopted these laws, there's been coded ways of talking about things, and mm-hmm. they've had to adopt new ways of, of approaching, you know, racist rhetoric or whatever. Right. But it's seen as a public good not to try to do that. They've mm-hmm. just decided to build that into their system, mm-hmm. right? Uh, we haven't done that. We're, you know, be as racist as you like, you know? Like, yeah. It's, it's just fine. Like, uh, we freedom of speech, you know? They're, mm-hmm. they're, they're, nothing bad could possibly happen from people being as racist as possible, as publicly as possible. Right, right. <laughs> Which I think, I think historically might... I'm just I pushing think, back. I don't necessarily agree. I don't agree with this, uh, but I'm just saying that that is the argument. So I have a hard time saying that, okay... Uh, there's hate speech, and I'm not exactly sure how you define yeah. it and how you would implement it, right? right? In a way that doesn't invite abuse. Yeah. But Before even people, beyond that, yeah. like, I don't understand. So, hate speech, and let's say, like, we define hate speech as being, okay, well, we don't allow people to use the N word or incite violence against minority groups. That's right. not what we talk about. And I think that's a fair definition that's, that's stringent enough. You don't allow people to incite violence against minority groups. Uh, or any type of group, um, and that's hate speech, right? Right. Uh, but I don't see how Ann Coulter fits into that because she is a right-wing idiot. But I don't understand why I would feel the need to protest her even speaking. That I don't understand at all because mm-hmm. even even if I allow you to take the hate speech argument and say that that's okay to ban, I don't believe that. But if I allow you and I let you draw some lines, I don't see how Ann Coulter crosses any of those lines there's the argument there's the argument you can make that it's a university and they don't have the right to right why do they keep going to berkeley as opposed to duke yeah exactly or jerry falwell university liberty university there you could go to vanderbilt there are much more conservative prestigious schools yeah you could go to princeton (laughs) sure yeah there are many more conservative schools so they're clearly trolling in which case like and the school does have a responsibility to protect its own liability yeah. and if they expect that there, there's the expectation that violence will break out as yeah. a result of this person coming they certainly I would say have a responsibility to cancel that no matter on what side it is you know yeah. like if it's a if it's a Rolling Stones concert and the Hells Angels have declared that they are coming in mass in order to you know like crush some hippie heads maybe cancel that concert yeah you know? uh, that sucks but that's you know it that's that's why venues that can absorb that liability are the places to do this so universities nece- can't they have a, they're public they, a big stadium can right I, I, I just want to go back to the idea that the way the worst thing you can do to Ann Coulter is to ignore her I, I mean I, but that's that's such a Gen X thing to say buddy I mean we would agree <laughs> with I would agree with you but that's <laughs> not the, the, the idea in the modern age is it's impossible to ignore things you know you must like focus it's on super all easy <laughs> it agree. is super easy I agree I agree but it's it, there's... just go to Japan you don't even need the internet that much <laughs> yeah, yeah I don't even have a phone right. but there's a Gen generation of people that feel that they uh, have no choice but to be to live online to be enmeshed in something 24 hours a day uh, this like conversation public space is somehow psychic space always you know I don't agree with it all I think I think the internet is dangerous in that respect people should be able to check out of it yeah absolutely just for your mental health 100% yeah. I, it's a form that it's weird but um, 
is there because I, I mean to me like at yeah. face value I don't I don't see a lot redeeming I think this is definitely a sign of like how the left is is moving in a direction I don't like I'm not convinced it's it's electoral poison or in the long-term strategy of the Democratic Party it fits in it or doesn't yeah. I don't really care about that I think it's a bad idea to talk about speech and labeling something as hate speech in a way that leaves that definition up to abuse or wide interpretation because then you stop listening to the voices right, right. no i mean I, if it did what they wanted it to do i would support it but i think we are a pragmatic country and yeah. we will see that it does not have the effect that they want and eventually people are, will return to the first principles and they'll be like oh shit i mean it's better to just not have this yeah and like you know associate with people that want to associate with and respectfully listen to those i don't like or don't listen to them and mm -hmm. you know engage with them in venues where i feel that it is uh, productive to engage with them and don't when it doesn't feel that way right and there will be a generation that is immune to trolling in a way that the current generation is not. Yeah, absolutely. And I, uh, yeah, exactly. Like each new yeah. form of media yeah. strikes you hard and yeah. then you develop your immunity towards it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or your insensitivity towards it. Um, you know, the one thing that I have noticed is that um, a lot of the people that I follow um, who come from the right are really incensed about uh, the Berkeley thing. And, and they argue about the freedom of speech and how hypocritical it is for the left to talk about the freedom of speech. And they talk about all the kind of gymnastics you have to do in order to think about hate speech. Fundamentally, I think that's disingenuous, right? Mm. Because I think the right is picking up on what uh, these sort of ructions on like a, a handful of campuses, which are always much more left, always much more willing to like blow up over issues. And Berkeley, of all places, um, are much more sensitive and much more volatile than... I think your average leftist, right? Like, I mean, I think this is also an issue of, of how the Democrats are doubling down on defeat because I think that they set themselves for, up for being easily provoked. Yeah. And yeah. easily trolled. For and, sure. And there's a margin on the right that it loves provoking the left. I saw this thing on, on the internet and how uh, people on the right are uh, showing up with pictures of like, basically looks like an AOK sign and it's not clear if that's like it's a white power sign or whether or not that's completely made up. But I actually think that there's a circular logic here where all of a sudden, whether or not it actually means white power, I think people are starting to throw the sign just to provoke people. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, I'm way more interested in the abuses of white power than I am in the symbols of white power. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Throwing up a hand signal is not... I think people sometimes... You know, people who often are mentally ill or gravitate toward the wrong thing. Well, you're right, yeah, one way or the like, other. Yeah, yeah. like something on the margin, a marginal yeah. thought process, and sometimes that's hate crime. So you'll see, like, okay, is this person, you know, who did something awful? Are they being punished because they have hate in their heart and they're prejudiced, or just because they're mentally ill and don't have a support structure? Yeah, so, they just go to, and also like the people that are true believers, like you know need followers and the only people that are willing to follow them down this fucking path are like mentally yeah. ill people who yeah. they can be nice to and then they like have a thrall for life and yeah. it's just fucked up and sad but it, I mean, banning them from speaking will just make them tighter if I were running Berkeley's student protest movement right mm -hmm. I would invite Ann Coulter and have people there with clipboards for her followers 
trying to like sell them on like Obamacare, trying to sign <laughs> them up, right? right? Like finding out their healthcare plan, right. you know, like. And I would look at my, you know, it should be, yeah, it should level be... of success. How many people we got to register? And then right, right, you put right. that press release out, you know, like twenty percent of Ann Coulter's fans registered for healthcare. I had, I had something else to talk about sure. as far as like the doubling down on defeat thing, which is. Uh, so Tom Perez and Bernie Sanders have been on their unity tour, right? Yeah, where Bernie seems to be not so unified. Well, so he had this whole thing where he, uh, they were both, or Bernie Sanders came out in support of this candidate, Heath Mello, who turned out to be like a pro-life Democrat, right? Yeah. And <laughs> Sanders uh, made the point that we should be more, we have to be inclusive of people's points of view and not have some kind of purity test for being a progressive. I think a lot of people listen to him, and what does that mean as far as, like, is this going to be an issue that the Democrats push back away from? Is this going to be something that's fungible now? Uh, I certainly hope not. I think it will really hurt the Democratic brand if they decide to be, like, fungible on pro-life, you know? And I say that as someone who raised Catholic. Right. I think it's one of the things that attracts people to the Democratic Party over, makes them cross the aisle. Right. Uh, you know, this is interesting, too, because I, uh, one of the things I've seen is that a lot of people are talking about, uh, it always seems to be a sticking point about from conservative writers I otherwise like. They are fervently anti-abortion, and they're talking about how science is behind them. There's just a lot of echo chamber kind of thinking sure. about it. And there's, there's plenty of that on the left. But, like, how science is behind them and when life begins. And I was like, didn't you lose this debate? I'm surprised that on the right... <laughs> yeah, this, happened, this happened. We did this. We did this already. <laughs> yeah. Like, this is... I, I'm surprised on the right that this argument is so fervent. And I, I think there's enough space to be like, I respect other people's rights to make choices about about bringing a baby. It's a term that's fine. It's called being pro-choice. I, uh, in fact, making it available and safe and teaching sex ed and providing contraception and all the liberal bullshit that we love lowers the rate of abortions. Right. So if you're going from a purely pragmatic perspective of, I hate abortions, then here's the policies you should adopt in order to lower the rate. Right, and the right will always bring this up that, like, okay, we're winning this <laughs> argument because the number of abortions are, are lower. And I'm like, no. No, no. The, yeah, the reason... morning after pills warning that. Right, right exactly. There's, there's so many other things, like smart yeah. concept, you know, smart ideas about contraception and birth control and teaching about sex. Uh, I'm just surprised that the right holds on to this as such a strong policy plank in their yeah. platform. Like, I'm... Uh, that they don't feel the need to back down, um, which is just weird to me. I just, I, I, I've never. Even, uh, even weirder though that the left has decided this is a way they're going to triangulate voters away from Trump. Like that just seems like a complete right. As some, am I missing something? Did we start to poll like that? Now all of a sudden we're a fifty-fifty. I mean, I thought most no, people support. Most people do more. So at least some degree uh, a right or access to abortion, and I'm okay with us. I guess I'm okay with the Democrats toning down the rhetoric or trying to find a way to talk about being pro-choice. Uh, maybe the language may need to change in some ways. Like, there's, I, I think, I think the Democratic Party has the more inclusive platform that we are pro-choice because we think that it's up to someone to make the choice. Yes, individuals to make yeah, up that yeah, yeah. that choice. Uh, I I think you could message it differently. Yeah, um, if you feel like you're losing ground, but. That isn't the same thing as 
taking away someone's access. Mm-hmm. I also want to point out that uh, if I had anything to do, if I could form or guide uh, the abortion debate in any way, it would yeah. really yeah. think that for <laughs> men should not be debating this. <laughs> men should, should, yeah, awesome. It should just be women. Yeah, yeah. there's no reason. Well. Yeah. I would love to hear a debate between an. Uh, women on all the sides of this uh, yeah this if issue. Elizabeth Warren wants to sock it to Kamala Harris about this cool but yeah, Bernie well, Sanders I can't emphasize enough how stupid tactically it is to go pro-life from the left <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I, I don't think the left will go pro-life I think it'll just but I think it's messaging could well I just think for every person you gain yeah. You know, you're gonna you're gonna rob the enthusiasm and like fighting spirit from ten other people. Yeah, that's fair. And you need them now more than ever. Uh, before we leave the doubling down on defeat, I wanted to ask you what you thought of the whole uh, Obama speech uh, fees uh, kerfuffle on the left, because I guess also on the right, but uh, like Obama took in some. Four hundred thousand dollars for a speech he gave to. I forget how exactly. much. How much does LeBron James make per game? <laughs> I don't know. Probably around that. Yeah, it's so stupid. Yeah, <laughs> it is so dumb. I, I, I'm happy for him to cash big checks. Like, yeah. what do like people are asking? How much money do they need to make? As much as they can. I mean, he yeah. was the president of the United States. <laughs> yeah, that is a that is a reason to cash like. I'm okay with him cashing a check, if only to contrast with the idea that that's not what you do while you're in office. It's- that speech is going to be public, eh? So we're going to find out what he's going to say to them. Yeah. And, you know, I imagine it's going to be pretty un, you know, unremarkable. Yeah. And possibly castigation. Yeah. Uh, I really don't. <laughs> yeah. I don't think this is a violation. Whatever he says is not going to be a violation of generally what the policies and the viewpoints that Obama had put out. If there's going to be public, and if he gets paid to say what he's always said, why not? Yeah. Uh, no, also, it's just, a, you know, why are we going to start enforcing that standard now? It's like, we're going to create this, like, double standard. You know, yeah. Why, why is- All right, do you want to go to uh, Outside the Bubble? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so there were a couple of things I wanted to talk about. Um, two people in particular I follow on Twitter. Uh, the first, I think, is uh, uh, Seth Mandel. Okay. So Seth Mandel uh, writes for the New York Post. Uh, Ooh, controversial. Uh, uh, he, he writes editorials. Um he is utterly worth following on Twitter. Um, he is interesting. Uh, he is certainly conservative. Uh, he is certainly anti-abortion. <laughs> it's an interesting Twitter profile on a lot of levels. Uh, in some ways, I, th- he's, I think he's either professional friends or friends with Ben Shapiro, um, who I've mentioned before and who I like. But I end up I realized that I like Seth Mandel a lot more because with uh, Seth, he works for a paper. He's trying to... Uh, write about the news and I think with Ben Shapiro he's creating a cult of personality around Ben Shapiro there's a lot of punching down for Ben Shapiro there's a lot of endless self-promotion and if you follow him on Twitter it's a lot of retweeting fawning fans testimonies about Ben Shapiro whereas Seth Mandel writes about basic events basic facts Uh, I don't always agree with him he's certainly no fan of Obama but he will also call out the right when they screw things up uh, he's been particularly sensitive, I think, to issues of what I would consider bigotry on the right against uh, Muslims. 
um, and the hypocrisy of uh, religious freedom issues. Um, but in general, he's a pretty conservative guy, uh, but he's written also some pieces that have nothing to do with being right or left. He's talking about how terrible Penn Station is. Uh, <laughs> it is terrible. Jesus Christ, that is the worst place. He's written, he's written some very powerful, very, I think they got a lot of coverage, actually. His editorials on, on Penn Station have been really good. Oh, amazing. Uh, I'm reading those. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I would highly recommend him. He has this kind of lovely relationship with his wife on Twitter. For the, for the folks who don't live in New York, would you like to explain why Penn Station is a god-awful monstrosity? That no, I mean, I wish I knew, from? but it is just a shithole. <laughs> it's, it's somehow New York City has managed to create um, this station that takes in a lot of trains from New Jersey and turn it into like this sad clusterfuck of i think it's insulting to call it like a third world like train station i've been to through third world train stations some of them are well run it's just it's just sad it's often dirty it's grimy and i think if you cared about this sort of stuff it's appalling because it's a really ugly building underneath madison square garden and what used to be penn station was absolutely beautiful yeah um uh, it's just like it's glass iron it's like grand central station yeah, it was much prettier. more beautiful. Yeah, yeah, it was yeah, much prettier yeah, than yeah, yeah. Grand Central. The old building could not handle more and more traffic. So there's an argument about that. But it, I would read Seth Mandel's stuff on on Penn Station alone. But also in general, I think he's he's helpful to read in terms of trying to get a feel for what uh, at least a New York based conservative looks and, and sounds like. Uh, anything else? Um, I have followed, and I, I this is a much more qualified recommendation. I have been entertained by a guy named Nick Searcy. Okay. Nick Searcy is an actor. Um, he was uh, one of my favorite characters and one of my favorite shows. He played Art Mullen, who's the head of the head of the division or whatever, and Justified, which is one of my favorite shows. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah um, uh, uh, Nick Searcy is a North Carolinian, so I always have a sympathy for any North Carolinian. Um, um, but he is an angry conservative. He's like Hollywood's most angry conservative. Uh, he will get into like screaming matches on Twitter with like people. Uh, you never feel like he's punching down, but like you know, he will he will dismiss people. He'll call people assholes he's never met. Uh, like, and he is way conservative, but he's really entertaining. Um, I, I think he can get a little bit much, um, and he's certainly angry. Uh, Better quality of troll than your Milo or your Ann Coulter. Yeah, absolutely. I don't. <laughs> I, yeah, I think with Milo and Ann Coulter, I mean, I feel like. It, there's something disingenuous yeah. with Nick Searcy. I think he's genuinely angry, and there's a certain sympathy. I get it. Like you don't, uh, and I think the, my sympathy comes from the idea that, like, I think it's easy for the left to call people racist or whatever it is, and and I, I don't. That doesn't apply to Nick Searcy, yeah. right? Like Nick Searcy's, he adopted a black kid. Like I mean, yeah, he's yeah. like, and he. I don't think he's homophobic or anything like that. I think he has a prejudice for. Muslims, but I, I, it is what it is. But I think the anger comes from being accused of being racist because he's conservative, and I think that's legitimate. Um, and so he vents a lot. I don't think it's. I, I worry about him a little, but like it's an interesting read. You know, follow him for a week or two, and if you don't like him, cool, check it out. But yeah, yeah, you gotta find conservatives in this day and age that like pet conservatives, like that you would eat dinner with and talk about things. Oh my god, I would kill to have Seth Mendel on this podcast. <laughs> yeah, I really yeah. thought about it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Maybe we can get him out here. Yeah. Post, you know. Yeah. Uh, 
Uh, we'll just talk. We'll have a whole segment on pit station. Cause yeah. I, hate that place. I think I'm less concerned about the dirt than I am. Just how confusingly laid out and poorly labeled it is. Yeah. We'll just wander around that place, like not knowing where they're going. It's like yeah. the only, one of the only places in New York where you see people just like lost. And you know, yeah. you know where that doesn't happen? Where's that? Japanese train station. <laughs> I believe you. Yeah, that's so Nick Searcy and Seth Mandel. Yeah. Conservatives to follow on Twitter. Yep. Uh, actually, I have a lot this week. Oh, right, awesome. I, I read a bunch of books. Uh, I, I talked about Texas Matters before, right? The podcast is just about yeah. Texas. Uh, and I got to this one book through Texas Matters. He had a, he had the writer on his show. Uh, it's called Ten Dollars to Hate, and it's a history of the KKK in Texas. Oh yeah, you mentioned this I think before. Uh, and it's fascinating. It's really really interesting because uh, the KKK, its resurgence after Birth of a Nation, it was all about kind of fighting Jews, Catholics, and immigrants. Uh, and also, it was a prohibition organ, right? Mm-hmm. So it's trying to enforce prohibition in towns. And, of course, uh, you know, lynching black people and doing as much harm as they could to, you know... It's strategy coming out of, as, as the new rebranded KKK, was trying to find inroads of bigotry everywhere. So as they, you know, created this new pyramid scheme structure where they had these people going out and trying to drum up you know, it's about ten. It's called ten dollars a day because you anybody could join the KKK if they paid their ten dollars. Right. Threw their ten dollars down. You became and you're white, obviously. I remember. Um, I grew up with these uh, uh, family, the Grossmans. They're Jewish. The older brother told this story about how his grandfather was approached by the KKK to join. Yeah. Yeah, because like the, the, well, it was percentage deal. The Klee goal is what you're what you're called if you're the you know your your recruiter. Yeah. You get like four dollars of the ten dollar. Uh, oh, okay, yeah, yeah. So there's an incentive, and like, and and how, I mean, like, I don't remember what his reaction was, but like, yeah, I don't, I don't think this is gonna work out. For the organization. <laughs> yeah, it, the book's interesting because it's about you know the profiteering uh, nature of the organization and its new inception, uh, and uh, that's kind of how it was fought. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Texas, the the youngest governor uh, ever, Dan Moody. Uh, became governor because of his breaking up the KKK in Texas and fighting it because it was fought back against for not being a genuine white supremacist organization. <laughs> right. This <laughs> it, being Texas. This yeah. being Texas. I mean, you know, he had Catholic and Jewish friends, and he would, mm-hmm. but he was also wanted to point out that this was just a con. It was a scam, right? They were taking this money, funneling it back to this you know, central organization, making wild, inflated claims about their, how many people were in the KKK. Yeah. Uh, and and you know terrorizing people for he wanted to get rid of them obviously yeah. the way that he took aim at them was by selling the ridiculousness and the the I guess like ineffectiveness of them yeah. in addition to just this was like not the most powerful organization you could join yeah. if you were a white supremacist right. that would be like the church you know? <laughs> or like like come back to the church we will yeah. have you at the Lutheran church you know you don't, there's no need for the KKK right. <laughs> it's a fascinating book for that reason no, it just says awesome. like anecdote after anecdote about the way in which the KKK kind of broke itself on Texas that's amazing right. trying, and how this kind of caused it to to die and then like it just couldn't since they couldn't really take Texas they kind of folded everywhere else too yeah and, oh, interesting uh, and except for Indiana which is where they kind of like made their I thought they I thought they had a hold on uh, North Carolina for years but Indiana was the place where they made the most no uh, they had this whole you know push to get into Congress and senators and governors and you know the judiciary 
and like Indiana was the place where they were the most successful at like taking over government. Well, I think I told you this story, right? Where I um, uh, so Lillington, North Carolina, was a the, I think the headquarters of the KKK, but they were forced to disband for some reason. I forget why there's legal action, but um, uh, when I was younger, I went to like Boy Scout camp, and one of the and you have troops from all over North Carolina come in, and one of them was from uh, Lillington, and yeah. they were like. And they, the people there were like comically racist, <laughs> yeah. comically racist. Yeah. They were like, and in no way sold racism for the rest of us. Yeah. Like they're like, oh, is that what it means to be a racist? I, yeah. I just don't want any part of it. Here. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, mm-hmm. I, anything else? Uh, yeah. So I read H.R. McMaster's book, uh, Dereliction of Duty. And how was it? Interesting. Not what I thought it was going to be. Uh, he must be in his own personal hell right now. Uh, so the book is about how. Kennedy and LBJ kind of deformed Eisenhower's military-run superstructure for fighting the Cold War uh, and used it instead for political purposes, thereby causing us to not win in Vietnam because we planned for failure and we didn't, you know, attempt to win from the outset. And the president, LBJ, was beholden to, I guess, democracy uh, as far as his ability to wage the war and get consensus for it. Right. Uh, and also, McNamara had this idea of communicating with communism through violence as opposed to trying to, like, win, right? Huh, uh, interesting. All right. Uh, uh, so he saw this new restructuring of the Joint Chiefs of Staff as kind of being stabbed in the back as far as the ability to win a war. Hmm, okay. Uh, for that reason, it's interesting that he's chose to be part of the Trump administration, being is that almost every political, you know, military move would be filtered through its political effects on a domestic level first. I don't know what it was like before I was born, but I can't think of a time when the military and military endeavors weren't intimately tied with political fortunes, right? I've only known a civilian government, so like uh, the military exists as a. Uh, serves at the behest of a civilian government so yes <laughs> absolutely 100% always exploited for uh, what they can do for the person who's in charge and it's always the president in, in the case of the US so whatever the military does it's supposed to reflect up and reflects upon the president and therefore they are the military is subject to the whims of uh, democracy also you have to have an extremely narrow view of or definition of the word politics to right to to have any kind of military that doesn't operate politically you know the military also works to preserve itself first and foremost did you get anything out of reading the book do you i mean what, what was your impression of, of him as a mind uh as a mind i found him to be a little bit naive yeah probably a good military tactician yeah uh he points you know the whole book kind of an exhaustive survey of where we went wrong and been planning not to win the vietnam war but in a post-nuclear age like that seems arbitrary like war can be won at great cost no matter what so then what you're looking at something else always with respect to war mcnamara called it communication uh not sure what the right word for it is but your aggression has an end that leads to the annihilation of the human species now and we should always work backward to prevent that i would say right and i think it's always difficult to be seen as 
when you come from the U.S. military to be anything other than an invading force. Yeah. So I don't know what he thought winning the war would look like if you were taking on Ho Chi Minh, um, uh, but uh, keeping the peace. I think his argument, if I'm going to be generous here, is that the fact that no one was honest about the kind of troop commitment, the kind of war that would need to be fought in order to win, yeah, caused people to be more willing to engage in the war at all. Mm. Whereas if the military, uh, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, the Secretary of Defense had been more honest about, then we would never have engaged in it, the cost of winning. Okay. Uh, instead, they were more optimistic and thought that a strategy of graduated pressure and like escalation would cause uh, the North Vietnamese government to capitulate, to, mm-hmm. to enter into negotiations, would, would cause people to scale back. And therefore, they slowly led us into a quicksand. I mean, I think you can make arguments against it both from the left and yeah. the right, yeah? I mean, yeah. if you're a fervent anti-communist, you raise the cost of being a communist a satellite. Yeah. yeah. I think there's something to be said. That's I don't think the dominant theory totally holds, but yeah, it's very possible that if Northern Vietnam took over the rest yeah. of Vietnam, um, once they kicked out the French, then, I mean, it would have, it would, may have been lessons learned, and, and maybe Southeast Asia would have also gone the way of, uh, of Vietnam, maybe. Uh, I was going to say also that um, one of my favorite... A uh, conservative foreign policy wonk, Corey Shockey, actually wrote a, a, a small bit, I think, um, and she's pretty critical of McMaster's as well. I think for the same reason that I think he, he's pretty naive about how, what the interaction between the civilian government and uh, a military leadership sh- should be. Reading his book, I that's where, you know, I get a sense of somebody who would be pretty much on a daily basis pretty frustrated and pissed by a Trump government. I mean, which is always, it seems like it's always going to subordinate military decisions to the political ramifications of it. Yeah. Or, you know, maybe he'll have total power, which is even more scary. McMasters and maybe Kelly form a Praetorian Guard, but <laughs> Mattis is definitely the new Caesar. There's certainly some nobility to the book. Uh, yeah. Not a nobility that I believe in. I have actually am very contemptuous of it, but it is there's a consistency to it that is um, something worth respecting if that is something that you are inclined to respect. And is that it for Outside the Bubble? Yeah, unless you have anything else. No, I got nothing else, man. Um, Should we move on to random, random shit? shit? Yeah, 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 so I guess uh, this for this podcast we wanted to talk a little bit about video games. Yeah. Uh, the reason that it gets brought up, at least right now, is um, as we mentioned, my wife is away, I have a lot of time, and one of the things I like to do is play video games. Uh, but I wanted to ask you, like, what are your... I don't, I, we don't really talk that much about video games, but... Uh, do you play often? Do you like playing them? I wouldn't say often. I mean, I view it as an art form, yeah. uh, and it's interesting and does things. But as you know, I, I certainly prefer board games. Uh, I like human interaction, and there's yeah. a whole element to it that is debased. Uh, but I've played lots of video games in my day. You know, yeah. In America. But yeah, no, I, I always preferred computer games, I think. Just they're more rich and interesting yeah. and less censorship really just like weird it become, became more art whereas like console games were always very like chat for children yeah you know, uh, kind of universally yeah I think so that's the, to some degree I mean there were some games I thought on the console games that were brilliant did you ever play um, uh, Colossus Legend of the Colossus no no no, no. Oh my god. Shadow so, of the Colossus? Well, Shadow of Colossus. Yeah, Shadow of Colossus. yeah, I actually did play that. Yeah. Shadow of Colossus. That game is brilliant. Yeah. Shadow of Colossus yeah, is. Yeah. It, that's no, like. Fair enough. Yeah, 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 Shadow of Colossus is like 
kind of like beautiful. That's an amazing game. Desolate yeah, art, and yeah, it's that's in a way game. that like yeah. But I mean, uh, that, for computer games, there were always like there were games like I guess they were called adventure games. Yeah, like Monkey Island. And Monkey Island, I love. Yeah, I love those games. I, I think there's something a little disappointing in playing a game like Monkey Island now because. If you get mildly frustrated, you, you just look, look it up. Online. Yeah, back then you couldn't. You know? Right. You're just like screwed. You just play forever. Yeah. You try to do everything. It's yeah. Like... It's definitely where, like, you, you know, you pick up, you can walk through this world, you pick up stuff, and you try to get from point to, uh, from point to point. But like, the sense of humor and like how they how they really kind of made the game funny and and frustrating at the same time, I thought was great. But apparently, the Monkey Island franchise is dead. Yeah, I yeah. believe that. Yeah. There just isn't... I, they, they, these kind of games we're talking about, they there's eventually kind of ceased to be a market for them. Yeah. People became very frustrated with them and sort of they just evaporated into, I guess, like uh, 3D shooters and warfare simulators. And yeah, I think the puzzle games may have... I'm not exactly sure what happened to them because yeah. I, think, I think, you know, being able to look online sort of throbs it of its interesting ability. Like, yeah. Uh, but I mean, I, there are plenty of puzzle type games, but they think they're much more visual, maybe a little less logical. Um, yeah. Because you know, games have moved to being you know more on mobile or either flatter games, like you don't need as much processing power, or you need like a huge way machine. more amount. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, I think the middle has kind of gone out of gaming in that way. Also, the it's become a lot more consolidated, and there's more money in it. It's more of a sport in some ways. Well, I think it's always been a blockbuster. Yeah. yeah, uh, yeah. It's always it's always been a blockbuster cyclical industry and so like big games profit a lot what i'm actually really happy to see is actually there are just a lot of indie game yeah that's makers fascinating now. to me yeah. yeah and i think that wasn't true even five or ten years ago but now there are just a bunch of indie game uh developers either for mobile or for like web-based games um some of them were like amazing and great there were a couple of games that i played that were effectively like click games on the on your uh, mobile you don't have a mobile device but i though that were kind of brilliant like Kim T- Kardashian put out a video game. Uh, a game. It was good. It was really <laughs> soft. I don't know. Whatever. Kim Kardashian's world. But basically, you're a personal assistant, uh, and you have to like work your way up the pers- personal assistant ladder. And like, you know, it's all a cash in. How, how, how far did you get, Kevin? Uh, I got to a couple levels before I had to start paying money. To work, <laughs> and I was like, I'm not doing this. I think maybe you had to pay something in the beginning, but then like. Typical of a lot of the mobile games, you have to, like, you can get through the game. You can either spend time or money, but it's a lot easier if you spend money. Um, And I was like, I'm not going to spend money, and I don't (laughs) care enough time. And, like, it was well done. Whoever they, I assume she's not doing the coding herself. Whoever they hired to, like, design that game, it was really well done. Yeah, I I do enjoy that polish and that, uh, you know, attention to detail. But I also like the uniqueness of those I mean, I guess the indie games are kind of making a comeback as far yeah. as that resurgence. But there was a great, there was, it felt like 15 years or so, where it was just like games that just been flattened. Yeah. Like a steamroller by like consoles, you know. Yeah. Like, I, and that was, I guess, my peak gaming years when everybody was, you know, from the Super Nintendo to like the N64, I was just not interested. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, you know, I played old computer games right. and then I you know lost interest for, for a long time what to what ends <laughs> <laughs> but you know I had a really good time uh, playing video games with either my buddies or even some of the women I dated we were you know, like um, yeah really solid sports games what was your game what was your game uh, so what we were playing what we played when I got out of college 
a lot were like the Tony Hawk games okay. or, or like um, SSX, which is like a snowboarding game. Yes. So I'm it's not necessarily like the game. team games. What? <laughs> I'm familiar with SSX Tricky. My college roommates played it at full volume at all hours of the day. That must like, have been really annoying. Oh, it was horrible. Uh, so when I got out of college, we had a, an apartment that was effectively a dorm because we yeah. had a bunch of people crashing with yeah, us. Yeah. And Same they way. had all sorts of odd hours. Yeah. So like, I remember I had a buddy was going through just a, the worst divorce the county had ever seen um and uh but he was crashing with us and like uh we go to bed and like he he would leave him at like two, i don't know maybe anywhere from 10 p.m or 2 a.m he would be playing the game and you would wake up at like six or eight and he'd still be playing that game it's the most it's on some level you know as an artist it's amazing like it's the most intense people interact with a piece of art yeah. ever gay you know like they lose themselves in it which is beautiful on another level the art that they're losing themselves with is very demoralizing <laughs> as a creator. <laughs> uh, explain. Well, you know, like you want to write and make something personal and beautiful, and you know, you'll never be able to make something as like thrilling as Tetris. You know. Right. <laughs> right. 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 <laughs> and right. so that I can what... see how the 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 narrative conventions of Zelda leave you a little. Like, yeah, it's like well, let's okay. see. <laughs> and it's you recognize that that the craft dictates that it must be this kind of game you know like the craft of it You're, people bring you know all art is interactive but they bring they you, you know you're the hero so it's got to be something that right. totally flattens out humanity to well make, yeah to it, make room for yours that you bring to it are there any kinds of genres of games that you like detest or loathe? I, I never i cannot do a first person shooter to really? save my life uh, it's funny that you live in New York, which is just one big first person. I know, right? Um, <laughs> uh, I never have liked the like first person shooter off of a keypad. Mm -hmm. I just I don't have the coordination for it. I yeah, don't. Yeah, yeah. I can't take in all that information. Yeah, I don't know. I just don't have that that eye hand eye coordination. And, and, I mean, there's something brutal about it, but I don't think it's a moral issue. It's just that I suck at that game, <laughs> at that type of game. What about you? Uh, yeah, like your 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 basic shit's falling from the sky put it in a like order game i i really hate like games that just like waste time just like going through your default pattern of human organization you know like <laughs> tetris or candy crush like it's like it's a plague on existence it's just, like, this is the holding pattern for human consciousness like making patterns of things yes like <laughs> you, they have tapped into this addiction of like a thing that you will do innately and you are like wasting your life doing this i just want to like take it from people and like throw it at the wall you know there's a million different kinds of this game yeah you know, interesting because I, I i like puzzles i like those kind of yeah, yeah. puzzles uh, i just never got into tetris yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know why it just was like okay uh, i get it um it's beautiful it's a piece of art it's amazing like, yeah i think it's like a piece of pop art just like it's but it... my wife plays a few uh like games on her phone yeah, um, yeah. and one game she really liked was alpha bear um okay which, Basically, you're given a... The bears are irrelevant, but basically you're given a bunch of words, and you try a bunch of letters, and you try to form words out of them in a way that's not... I see. Not, much like Boggle, I guess? Yeah, yeah but much like Boggle. <laughs> so it's like a, but it has kind of a bears theme, and you have different bears that give you different powers, but like it's, it's a slightly more complicated Boggle. My wife really likes Boggle. <laughs> so she was playing that, and I remember being like, I just want to like write some code to to make sure that like you know just just to hack around it so like like so i wrote some code cheat my way through this game 
And I, I think I, I quickly killed it for her. Like, it, there, there was an easy way to kind of like maximize the outcome. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so like I was like, okay, well, this, this is how you get it. And I think I, I killed that game for her. But uh, yeah, a game without like a human touch, I'm just generally kind of mad at. Yeah. And then I think it's a lot of games. Yeah, I, I think so. I think it's um, if if it's so easy to optimize or so naked to optimize, I just want to just want to build like the the code for it and then kind of let the computer run. Yeah, I mean, like, even, like, a Mario Brothers, a computer can play that better than you can, you know, always. <laughs> yeah, well, for sure. You know, and then so you're only going to get to the point where you're as good as, like, you're slightly worse than a computer. Right, right, you're human error. What ex- not. Yeah, what experience are you, you know what I mean? Whereas, like, a game that tells a story or is, like, strategic in some way or, like, you know, even a computer would probably beat you at that, but, you know, you're still kind of, I don't know, more interested in that for sure. Yeah. Um, that takes you on an experience. Well, Shadow of the Colossus is amazing, but you're learning to fight these various, like, monsters. Yeah, there are only, like, six challenges, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or eight challenges or yeah, something like they're that. They're all beautiful, and it's just, like, a, the greatest vacation ever. I, I enjoy RPGs. I mean, at least I did when I was younger. Yeah. But I realize now that it's, like, causes just anxiety in me. Like, it's just, like, too much how I think about things and just, like, life in general. It's just, like, well, another... Like, like problem you know like another thing to like try to like slowly work your way through and like, like leveling up yeah 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 and just like what, what, what rpgs did you play or what part oh i'm pro- jr you know like final fantasy mm. six and seven and now it's like it's just like work and like you know struggle it's like ah so much of life is that i i, I would rather like not if i can help it right <laughs> I, I always had a little problem with like using video games as Especially, I think, in college, is like, uh, deliberate distractions. When I graduated college, I had nothing but time yeah. to get my computer. And so I started playing, and then I discovered this game called The Sims. Oh, and shit. Like, I was thinking about, and I realized this was my great lesson. I was like, oh, you know what I need to do in order to build my Sims? I need to, like... I need to I need to get my sim to go out more and build a social network, and I need it so that way I can get a better job and I can do better in this game. And then I realized what I was saying. <laughs> like I immediately <laughs> put it down. I immediately put down the game, and I was like, I gotta walk away from this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, yeah, actually, yeah. I don't think I've ever I never binged on video games as much. I mean, sometimes like, but I think after a couple of years of college, I just felt like other things were taking up my time. So yeah. like. Maybe this weekend I played a fair amount of Civ, but other than that, like, I don't really... It's such... It so taps into, like, human evil in so many ways. Yeah, video I mean, games Civ is too. an evil game. Yeah, 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 yeah. That, it, like, it does make you confront it in ways. Yeah. But then a lot of times the lesson you should get from a video game is to not play video games. Right, <laughs> which is what I got from the Once Civ. a year, yeah, 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 you tap in. Oh, like... I really like you playing... What's good for me? <laughs> yeah. What's good for my character? Yeah. Analogously... <laughs> If I were playing myself in real life, I, I would, would not, not be, be playing doing this. This yeah. seems like a waste. There yeah. are other things I could do. Yeah, 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 for sure. yeah, I guess, uh, is that it for video games? I think so. And All right. For another episode of yeah, Room so this Requirement. Has been, yeah, this has been an episode of uh, Room Requirement, episode number 15. Thank you guys for joining us. Uh, check us out on Twitter, Reddit, Stitcher, iTunes, SoundCloud. Uh, and yeah, feel free to get in touch with us um, and uh, give us any feedback. Uh, thanks for listening. And, yeah. And thanks, thanks. thanks to Kevin Carter for our lovely outro music. Yep. Thanks, everyone. Yeah.